When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm John Gibson and this is Gibbo's Corner. This is my chance to take you behind the headlines of some of the greatest Newcastle United stories. Thanks for listening and please remember to like and subscribe. Hello and welcome to Everything is Black and White Podcast. It's time for another episode of Gibbo's Corner. I'm joined by John Gibson who's worked for the Chronicle for near on 60 years. He's seen the highs and more lows possibly than we'd all like to uh, care for. And today's episode is based around the great captains that Gibbel mm. has watched, interviewed and, you know, formed friendships with. Um, many of them he has gone on to form great friendships with, um, which, you know, allows him to tell some colourful stories that might not be known um, to the public. But here we are. We're going to go dive straight in with probably um, one of your, you know, closest... Uh, we're going to dive straight in with, with Joe Harvey... Um, yeah. who was yeah. probably one of the closest people you, you know you grew to work with. Absolutely. I mean, I think really, Andrew, there's been two types of skippers that have done brilliant for Newcastle. Uh, there's the tub-thumping organisers, the brave hearts, if you like, on the field, which would be epitomised by Harvey and Schooler from the 50s, by Bob Monker and by Alan Shearer, who were great organisers, great leaders, over the top in the trenches, and others who led by example, really, by not by word, not by rallying calls, but just by being exceptional uh, and getting people to follow them that way. And the big example of that, I guess, the best example would be Kevin Keegan. Uh, but we start with the, the 50 skippers, and it's, it's amazing, really, to think that the two lords we start with is Joe Harvey and, and Jimmy Schooler, because they were the skippers when Newcastle won the FA Cup 51, 52 and 55. Unbelievably, the last skippers to win domestic trophies of any consequence, which is quite incredible. To a great extent, the same type of guys. I mean, Joe Harvey, 51 and 52 Cup final skipper. Uh, he was skipper from 1946 to 53. Um, and... His quality is obvious because he then came back as a manager, as indeed did uh, Kevin Keegan, 
and showed what he was all about. Uh, but it was from a totally different era to what we, we're used to today. The maximum wage was in place. Uh, at the stage when he was at the top of his game in the 50s, the weekly wage that he was on was 12 quid a week. He was captain Newcastle at Wembley and winning in Wembley, and he was on uh, 12 quid a week. And the big thing that they played for was a two quid win bonus. Uh, when they won a match, they got an extra two quid on top of the 12. In his phrase, whenever they sort of whistle went for the team to go out and he would grab all the ball, he would say, right, lads, let's get out and get the bay and a pair of shoes. Because that by that he meant, let's get the win bonus and we can buy the bay and a pair of shoes. And that was his famous phrase um, that he used all the time. And that sort of wit and leadership he took in to, to management, and as I told you, after he formed the um, the first Newcastle side that he put together as a manager, they won the second division championship and they went up into the old first division when they were going out again, remembering what he used to say about the bend and the pair of shoes. That didn't apply anymore. But he, but just as they were walking out for the home game and Monker picked up the ball, he said, wait a minute, lads, just want to say something. And they thought, pearls of wisdom, you know, tuck in, watch the winger on the left-hand side, make certain you double up on him. And he said, whatever you do, don't let them panic into playing football, which got everybody bursting out laughing, everybody relaxed, and they went, they went out. He was that sort of tub-thumber. But I always remember Jackie Milburn, who was the hero of that side in the 50s. Jackie Milburn was the Alan Shearer or whatever uh, of his time. And got very close to Joe Harvey and they become special friends and played golf together when Harvey was uh, manager. But he used to say, that he used to describe Joe Harvey as a sergeant major in the dressing room and he used to say quite openly, we were scared of him. They were friends, but they knew not to step over the line with him because his bark was absolutely savage. But I mean, that came from his background in the, in the, in the military as well. He was very, he was brought up like that and he very, took that very, into his football yeah very very tough tough man um, who believed in all the old world virtues you know a man was a man and, and that meant being tough and not giving an inch and um, taking that sort of organisation onto the field and it wasn't that he was a, a cultured footballer although he was a right half as we, they were called in those days today we would call him a central defender in a three or in a two, that's the job he did. He was an out-and-out defender. And he wasn't a culture defender. He wasn't a Jonathan Woodgate or, or uh, anybody, or even a Glenn Roder or anybody of, that was sophisticated on the ball. He, he used to have a, a phrase that they, they can't run without legs. Um, and it, when he was playing against centre-forwards, he made certain that they didn't pass. In him and... Uh, Frank Brennan together were absolutely flipping fearsome and he played the game he used to always say it's a man's game in the days when politically correct or not politically all he meant was that you, you had to be tough you had to be tough mentally and physically to do the job uh, he, he had the ball players he adored there was little Ernie Taylor who was about 5 foot 4 and about 6 stone wet through who played in the Newcastle 51 Cup final and he was he was one of the great mates of, of Joe because he admired him so much. And Joe was such a killer, and yet he admired Ernie Taylor from that side. And then when he became Newcastle's manager, he bought a, a 
a wealthy, wonderful, creative midfield players like uh, Tommy Craig and Terry Hibbert and uh, Tommy Cassidy and Jinky Smith. He loved ability, but he played with a massive heart and nobody got past him. And Schooler, to a certain extent, was the same way. I mean, just how proud was Joe lifting those cups at Wembley? Oh, uh, I mean, to him, that is what it was all about. He thought... He thought the Newcastle team in the 50s could have easily won the league. They had enough quality to win the league. But he said that, because I often said to him, Joe, you know, you were a cup side. You, you, did you never fancy winning the league? He said, well, I tell you, Gibber, that our attitude was, in those days, we've got to remember, the FA Cup carried so much more clout than, than it does today. There wasn't European competition, so the biggest thing you could win in terms of glamour was the FA Cup and he said you won the FA Cup at Wembley and the whole season everybody talked about the FA Cup and who was going to play at Wembley he said you can win the league on a Saturday afternoon away to whoever and and you win the league not a lot of if you're winning the league at Sheffield United or Sheffield Wednesday or something away on the final day of the season or you win the FA Cup at Wembley in front of 100,000 with it on top. That was the biggest thing in the calendar at the time. And he said, we could have won the league, but we wanted to be an FA Cup side. The great glamour and bringing it home on the train, getting on the open top coach and going around the city. I mean, he, he bursting with pride. And that's why when he became Newcastle manager, he wanted to win things. He got to the FA Cup final. He won the Anglo-Italian Cup, which was no mean feat. And, of course, the biggest of the lot, the, the one and only European victory of Newcastle. And he was about the drama of winning trophies. And there were knockout competitions, if you notice, rather than, than leagues. And you mentioned Skula there. I mean, a lot of people actually think... Or forget that he was the captain. Yeah, they think that Joe, Joe did the three sides. But Joe, by the time 55 came, was coaching Newcastle United. A lot of people forget that he was a coach in 55 as well. They think he just played for Newcastle, then went away and managed it working in Bowen, came back and did wonderful things in Newcastle. He was coaching 55. Jimmy Schooler was a different sort of player to Joe Harvey. Yes, I mean, he was a mixture of absolutely fearsome muscle, but delicate touch as well he he was as tough as Joe physically but he could ping the ball round I mean you look at Shelby on a good day not necessarily Shelby today but on a good day with the 60 yard passes that's what Jimmy Schooler did without looking up and he ran the 55 cup final from right half pinging the ball 60 70 yards to the outside left it was Bobby Mitchell and just dropping it on a plate for Bobby to go and do... I mean, he was known as Bobby Dazzler because he was one of these great, tricky Scottish wingers. And Jimmy Schooler had the pedigree. He'd come to us, he had been... He'd won the first, old First Division Championship with Portsmouth. Um, uh, the interesting thing was, when this was all over, Newcastle got his, his manager after the, the 50s, Charlie Mitten, who was a... a, a one of the great original extroverts and along many things he did he brought out a new strip mitten in which Newcastle United at the bottom of the shorts had a had a an edging on the end of the shorts 
a white edging around the black shorts. And um, Schooler, the toughest guy you could ever wish to meet, used to say to me, because I got to know him later in, in life, I was just a kid when he was playing in the cup final, but I, when I become a journal, I got to know him. And he said, you know, Gibbo, I was known as the hardest man in the first division. He said, when we were playing away and we ran out, fans on the way grounds used to shout, you slip showing schooler, because you saw this little white mark round the bottom of the shorts, and they hated it. Um, blinking cheek, he said, I'm, I'm a tough guy, and they're making us out to be a softy. Um, and he was the toughest of the tough, could he, but he could play. A bit like the Leeds midfielders that we saw later on with Don Revy. Just heading back to Joe Harvey then, I mean, you've mentioned they obviously became manager of Newcastle United. Um, mm. Looking at his captains when he was manager, did you see um, the leadership that he was as a player? Did you see that in his captains? Well, he had a succession of captains, and I'll come on to mention a few of them in one moment. But his major captain was a complete ringer for him, and that was Bob Munker. Uh, Bob not only looked a lot like Joe, tough build, black, wavy hair, which Joe, as a player, was. He looked like Joe. Joe absolutely loved him because he saw himself in Bob, uh, and he saw the toughness of himself, the physical toughness, not to get pushed around, uh, not to take in water and to rally the troops when the tide was against us. He just saw everything that he was uh, in Bob plus a little bit more because Bob was that extra player um, and, of course, went on. Joe Harvey was never an international, but Bob was captain of Scotland. He, he didn't just get Scottish caps. He was captain of Scotland. Um, and so... He was built in Harvey. And Harvey always thought, and so did I, incidentally, that uh, Bob Monker was destined to manage Newcastle United in the future. And I think, in all fairness, that was Bob's ambition. And he went out to learn the game in the way that, um, that Harvey did. And he went round managing Carlisle and Hearts and uh, Plymouth. And I remember tapping him on behalf of Newcastle United through Joe Harvey when he was at Hearts to come down here and manage Newcastle United. Um, and the amazing, and he thought that was wonderful because you know this was his fulfilment of his dream. And Newcastle wouldn't pay. There was compensation written into his contract at Hearts, and Newcastle wouldn't pay the compensation fee to Hearts. So he never got to manage Newcastle United, and so complete dream. Collapsed, but yeah, Bob Moncler was Joe Harvey as far as Harvey was concerned. And Bob always tells the story of the, the first cup final, a dismal first half, and he's waiting <laughs> yeah. for Joe to come in. Second leg in Budapest, yeah. And Joe comes in and he kind of says, Oh, you know, what's the matter? Have you ever heard Bob speak about it? It's fantastic. And, he, and and Bob kind of bites back and he goes, what do, you mean, what do you mean, what's the matter? I mean, yeah. I first of all, I mean, how do you think, I mean, how did Harvey react to that? Because that's biting back at your manager. And if a man who has a captain and a manager who commanded such respect, yeah. did he did he welcome that? And also as a captain himself, do you think he ever did, would have done that? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he worked under Stan Seymour, who was effectively the manager of Newcastle United in the 50s when they won the cup, although he was actually chairman and on the board and never had the title manager. They didn't have a manager in 51 and 52. Stan Seymour was it. And it... He would always forcibly put his point to to Seymour. Now, if Joe had respect for you, 
when he had a huge respect for Bob, both as a player and as a man in his mirror image, then he totally accepted But that's what a real captain should do. Other captains or other players of perhaps less ability, uh, Joe would have swallowed them. But uh, he wouldn't dare. And, and, and as you say, Bob, what's the matter? We're 2-0 down. We haven't got over the halfway line. But for Willie McFall, it would be four down. And you ask him, what's the matter? And that was Joe's famous speech about they're just a bunch of foreigners. If you score one goal, a little collapse like a deck of cards, just go out and score one goal. And unbelievably, who was a bloke that went out and within about three minutes scored the, the goal that Harvey was demanding, and that was uh, Bob himself. And that was his hat-trick goal over the two fights. I mean, absolutely. And it was on the f- the 50th birthday of Joe Harvey. It was his birthday that day, Joe Harvey, when he made the speech and when we won the Cup. Just flipping it round, obviously we mentioned Bob there. Was he aware of just how great a captain Joe had been? Oh, yes, he was. He was. Very, he was brought up because he was brought up under Joe as manager early, early doors and one of the senior players just before uh, the player left at Newcastle when Moncur was in the juniors and the reserves, was Jimmy Schooler, who was a fellow Scot. So he was brought up at the shoulder of, or at the knee, of the two great Newcastle skippers of the 50 Cup sides. And Jimmy Schooler was a fellow jock who was so quiet off the park and so volatile on the park. And you can't believe it, Joe, this uh, Schooler, this hard man, and uh, Moncur, this little whippersnapper kid who was playing in the reserves, used to play bowls together. You can't imagine that as a sport that they would both play, would you? You know, the bowls on the lawn, on the lawns, and they played bowls together. A couple of daft jocks. Um, so he learned and he saw from the greatest managers who just happened to be the greatest skippers who happened to be in Bob's image, and that was that really helped mould Bob into the sort of skipper he was. Let's talk about Joe's other skippers. Yeah, uh, again. yeah, yeah. Well, well his, his first skippers as uh, Andrew, as um, a manager, when he come, he built three sides. He built the second division championship side. They become champions and took us up because we're in the second division when he came. And then he built the 69 first cup team and the 74 FA Cup team. And his skipper of his side's uh, when we won the second division championship, when Moncur and Craig and Clark and Pop Robson were just young Bens coming into the side and making their way, uh, he had two skippers, Stan Anderson from 63 to 65 and Jim Eiley from 66 to 67. Now, that was the famous halfback line, that, uh, as it was called in those days, which is Newcastle were built on, which was Anderson, McGrath and Eiley. Um, now, they were magnificent together. The incredible thing is that Stan Hansen and Jim Eiley couldn't stand each other off the field. They could not stand each other. They didn't get on whatsoever. And John McGrath, who was the out-and-out centre-half between the pair of them, who was one of the funniest guys you could wish to meet and made a living after he finished playing and managing on the after-dinner circuit, full of fun stories, he used to act as a go-between. He used to pass messages along the line. Stan used to say, Hey, big man, Tell Eiley to chuck in here, and then Eiley would say, Hey, John, tell Duncan Anderson not to go forward so much. And, so, uh, and, and he was like the interpreter in the middle of this famous halfback line. And they, 
they admitted that they, they didn't like each other, but it doesn't matter because they played together. I mean, Anderson was an unbelievable signing for Newcastle because you've got to remember, he was an absolute legend at Sunderland. He played 447 games over 12 years for Sunderland, won two England caps. I mean, you know, we're never supposed to go from one camp to the other. He was absolutely and still is one of the great legends at Sunderland. And Newcastle went in from Joe Harvey went in from to get him. And Stan told me a story quite a few years later. When he went home and told his wife, Look, he was wanting to get away from Sunderland because he felt that after 12 years he wasn't getting good treatment. When he went home and told his wife, I think I'm going to sign for Newcastle, she burst into tears. She literally burst into tears. And his dad, who was a Sunderland fanatic, his dad stopped speaking to him. For five weeks, his father refused to speak to him because he was signed for Newcastle, and his wife burst into tears. And yet he came to Newcastle, he says... Without a shadow of doubt, he told me, the best two years of his life was at playing for Newcastle. Joe Harvey was the best manager he played under. His dad got to love Joe so much and what happened at Newcastle because Joe used to take him in the boardroom at the end of games and get him a drink and look after him. And he completely won over to Newcastle United's cause because of the handling of, of Jim. He admits that he didn't get on with Jim Eiley. In a way, Stan was the rather smooth and elegant-looking guy when you looked at him with black hair and he, he had sort of Anthony Idol looks and he was a very smooth guy. Jim was a big doer, Yorkshireman, bald sort of guy, good player. But, I mean, and Jim told me he, they didn't talk. Uh together at all and one of the problems Stan said was Jim Eiley was skipper of Newcastle before Stan arrived and when Stan arrived Joe took the captaincy off Jim Eiley and gave it to Stan Anderson. Any reason why? I mean, uh, Because he knew Anderson was a, was a better captain material. Jim Eiley was made captain because he could lead by example. You know I've said you get great captains and then you get captains who just because they're good players people will look up to them and respect them. Eiley was made captain because he, he could pass the ball and was a wonderful, played for Spurs and, and he, he was made it. But Anderson was your natural born leader and so he got the, the job. And when Stan left, it went back to Jim Eiley. But Jim Eiley told me a little while later, I said, why didn't he get on? He said, well, from the start. I, I thought this was the end of me. When we signed Anderson, I thought it was the end of me. First, because the captaincy was taken off me and given me given to Anderson. Second, he was Eiley was an attacking wing off, and Anderson was an attacking wing off. And he thought you can't play two attacking wing offs together. They tried to do it at uh, Spurs with Danny Blanchflower and Eiley. It didn't work, so they went to a defensive one and an attacking one. And Eiley lost his place at Spurs for that. And he thought exactly the same would happen here. But it did work here. And they worked out mainly through McGrath, a situation where when one was on the ball and attacked, the other one dropped in defensively and then they would switch round, etc. And that was mainly McGrath pulling the strings in the most unlikely partnership. Um, you know, you hear the likely lads, they were the unlikely lads. Uh, but they both skippered Newcastle in vastly, in vastly different ways. But Stan... 
the, the players that become great players in the first cup who were young lads at the time, like Monker and Pop Robson and Frank Clark, idolised Dan Anderson. And I reckon he brought their development about in that two years so much it was untrue. You mentioned Frank Clark there. We're going to give a brief chatter about him as well because obviously yeah, he, yeah, he, he had he, the armband. Yes, he did. He was another of the, of the captains. Uh, he followed Moncur. I mean, Moncur was there from 67 to 74. And we've talked about Bob in the past so often and we've talked now. There's no need to recall everything. But we know that he was skipper of everything Joe Harvey did as a manager. He was skipper of it. You know, he was in the... Uh, he wasn't skipper of the side that went up, but he played in it in the second division championship. But he was then skipper of the European First Cup side, the Anglo-Italian winning side, the side that won two Texaco Cup finals in which he scored uh, in one, and the team that went to the FA Cup final, if 74, which was his last ever game for Newcastle. Um, so it, it, it was... And, of course, that, that virtually marked the end of, of Joe Harvey at Newcastle as well, because by the 76 game... Uh, when we got to the League Cup final, Gordon Lee was in as manager, so we lost two huge symbols almost simultaneously when we lost Moncur and we lost um, we lost Joe Harvey. Uh, but Bob, as I say, was captain of Scotland at the same time. He was our Bobby Moore, who was the great England captain of Bob Moncur's era and was captain, of course, in 1966 when we won the World Cup. And really, Bob was our Bobby Moore, and Bob was Scotland's Bobby Moore, um, because he captained Scotland when Moore was captain England. And they both had a wonderful football grain. They could read where the ball would go, and they were politically, they were sound uh, territorially. They, they took up the right positions, but they were all... So both hugely one paced, but which was a, a not much of an asset, but that they there were quickness of thought to be able to overcome that and be two great great skippers when they were one paced, which was quite something. But they had their yardage in the mind, not in their legs. And Frank, I mean, yes, do you think he could have become? I mean, he wasn't captain for all that long, but obviously... No, he was only captain in 1974 and 75. Um, and that but all the years when Bob was Newcastle skipper and had huge success, Frank was his vice-captain in all the years and was an active vice-captain. He wasn't just there and when Bob missed a game with injury, come in, pick the ball up and lead them out. He was an active leader at the shoulder of Bob and they were very very close friends um, and and Bob has always said these days whenever he's around hey never forget Frank Clark not just as a player but his contribution in, in team meetings etc is absolutely huge in some ways you can say as far as the captaincy is concerned how unlucky did he get because he was captain between the two Wembley appearances, seventy-four when we won the um, when we went to the FA Cup final, and seventy-six when we went to the League Cup final. He wasn't captain in either of those, but he was captain in the two years in between. So you could you could say what an unlucky swine that he was. But uh, he, he he was uh, had all the leadership qualities, and I think 
That was shown because not only did he go and have the great career as a player at Nottingham Forest under Cloughy, uh, but he then managed Nottingham Forest and he managed Manchester City. He he became the the leader of the managers' association, the the union, and of course he became chairman of Nottingham Forest. So the leadership qualities come out later when he become a manager and a chairman. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big, short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, before we get on to Kevin Keegan, um, I just want to mm. ask you about leadership off the pitch um, with the names we've mentioned. Obviously, back then, the relationship with like journalists was a lot different. So you were... A lot you, different now, yeah. Yes, you were, you know, you were half the time out in the restaurants with, with the captains and with the players. Mind that didn't happen automatically. You had to you form your own friendship. It wasn't yeah. open sesame to us all. <laughs> but that ability to do that was, was there. So what was it like then for the captains off the pitch? Obviously, time is much different. But the, the attention... Mm. From fans, but you know, it was always there's always remained the same, especially oh, in a city like this. Absolutely. So the responsibility to be a leader off the pitch. I mean, how important was that? Yeah, I, I mean, and all the people we talk about, even when they went out socially, would never forget they were skipper. They were fun guys. They were young people. People like Moncur. People like Frank Clark. They're young men. We often forget that young men make mistakes. I'm talking about not on the pitch. I'm talking about as people. We all make mistakes when we're young. With footballers, you make your mistakes in public. We make our mistakes in private. Um, but there was always a Bob Moncur. There was always a Frank Clark who was there, even on a night out when we were out, and, and he would pull somebody to one side, one of the younger players who was just getting a bit silly or something, and say, look, we're in public everybody's watching us, just keep a grip, son, we don't want to be daft. Um, but, I mean, there was all sorts of stories got told. I mean, we, we used to have a, a winger in the 70s that played in around the 74 Cup final time, Stuart Barraclough, who made a lot of goals for Supermac because he was blisteringly quick and centering the ball, become a good, good mate of mine, little Yorkshire kid. Uh, and he was a little bouncy guy. He was always full of life. He was always hyper. And he went into the clubs with us, into the, the nightclubs. I hastened that on the right nights, not the wrong nights. But it, And he would be bouncing around. And the number of times Joe Harvey would get a call saying, saw Stuart Barraclough last night in the nightclub with a, uh, uh, on, on the uh, Bacardi and Cokes, uh, obviously ratted. Etc. Etc. Now, he was drinking coke, but he didn't drink. He didn't drink at all. But because he was a 
When I say a lunatic, I mean in the nicest possible way, not stroppy, but giggly. He was a giggly lad. He was tells tales and all about laughing. Everybody used to phone Joe, and Joe would say, oh, yeah, sure, sure, Barry, yeah. Never had a drink in his life, but he was reported regularly as being seen in nightclubs uh, on the source. You mentioned there, obviously, dual manager. I mean, that relationship between the manager and captain as well, I mean, how important very is important. that? Very, very important. And sometimes it doesn't work. Um, and sometimes it can be a bit of a problem if the players see the skipper as effectively the sneak for the manager, the sneak in the dressing room, you know, he's going to carry tails uh, to the manager behind the back. Uh, you've got to watch that you don't go down that road. And all the great captains, Keegan, Harvey, Schooler, Monker, Shearer, didn't do that. They were big enough men of their own and often took, Monday to Friday took the position into the hands where they didn't have to bother the manager. They sorted it out themselves. They are the great captains. Uh, you do get the sneaks and you do get the, the, the different sorts. But KK was a different captain um, to completely to um, Harvey and Moncur, for example. He wasn't the tub-thumping, roll the sleeves up, let's get stuck in, Braveheart type of skipper at all. He led by being the charismatic personality that he had and by example and by ability and, and work rate. I mean, he had made the career he had through working his socks off, not through natural God-given ability. Of course he had ability, but he'd worked to create himself to be the star that he'd become. It wasn't naturally given like, it is to a lot of players, like, say, to Beardsley or Jinky Smith on a good day, or where they're just talented and it comes natural. Keegan had to work on it to be as talented as he was. And, I mean, he was skipper 83, 84, the two years he was here. Um, and he carried an instant power w without a shadow of doubt. I mean, in his first season, he sort of... We won promotion in his second season. People forget that in his first season, Newcastle didn't go up. They, they, they didn't finish in a promotion position at all. And there was an option for him to leave the club after one season. He'd, he's always a very clever boy, and he had this in his contract. He could have left us after a season. And he used that tool very cleverly with the board, as he would use the tool when he was a manager later, to sort of say, I want to stay, but show me ambition before I stay. Not show me your money, Show me ambition. Um, and one of the things, we had a fella called Ray Verardi that played centre-forward. Now, he was blisteringly quick. He scored a pile of goals in the second division because he just got on the end of stuff. But he couldn't trap a bag of cement. Uh, he didn't have a touch at all. Um, and the way Keegan wanted to play was all quick, ball to feet, instant control, pass, 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 pass. And he went to Arthur Cox and said, look, I need, I need the forward that's alongside me to have a, a terrific touch and terrific vision. And um, Ray is just not that man. Now, Ray was crushed when he was sold because he'd scored a pile of goals for Newcastle. He was playing in the same side as Keegan. And I, I talked to him, he went down to Sheffield. He was absolutely crushed. And Newcastle went out and, and Cox, he went and said to Keegan, I've got the fella that you need 
to play alongside you with a wonderful touch. And he said, he's coming in today. And Keegan told me afterwards, sitting there, and this little guy comes in, and bear in mind Keegan's little. And he thought, him, who's he? He said, Peter Beardsley. He says, never heard of him. He says, never heard He was playing at Vancouver Whitecaps. Never heard of him. And then he become the greatest partnership, and he loved him so much, Pedro. He loved Pedro so much, he went and bought him, of course, when he was playing. But when you think of that side, Andrew, they went up, that Keegan skipped us, and we went up. There wasn't an orthodox centre-forward in that team. The three forwards were Waddle, Keegan in the centre, and Beardsley. Now, Waddle was tall, the other two were small, but there wasn't a target man, there wasn't a centre-forward, there wasn't a, a, a Milburn, a Supermac, a Shearer. There wasn't a natural line leader. The insta changed positions all the time and were played without a natural centre-forward. You mentioned there before the importance of not sort of kind of having that kind of snake as a captain. And yes. you talk there about Keegan going to the board and saying, well, I want, we're already gone. Yeah. Now, is that a different sort of thing? Because should should the board be that well, he went to the man. Keegan? He went to the manager to say that, yeah. not to the board. But he went to the board and said, I want to see ambition and, you know, to, to support the manager to make certain we go up. Kevin would always be controversial, but he would always be up front. Um, you, you, you know, uh, what you saw is what you get. He he wouldn't be a sneak. He wouldn't go behind your back. He would make a play in the dressing room. The way it wasn't his style of play, etc. It wasn't anything personal. It just didn't fit in with the way he played. And to get the best out of him, he needed people with an instant touch. Now, when you think of the front three of Keegan, Waddle and Beardsley. Brilliant touch. Waddle and Beardsley, brilliant touch. First time control. They all played 50, 60 times for England. And, and we had to have that sort of forward line. But he would always be confrontational. He was conf- Keegan, he was confrontational as a manager with the Newcastle board. He drove them absolutely flipping crackers with his demands for what he got wanted. And mainly he got it. As a captain, what was his greatest attribute? His greatest attribute was that he was able to walk in a room and a minute, the, the instant he did that, he had everybody's attention. And that was with the players. Et when he signed for Newcastle, he was captain of England and he, he played for Southampton, who would finish second top of the, of the first division. Uh, he was captain of England um, and he'd won, he'd been at Hamburg and won the European Football of the Year twice. He'd won the European Cup with with Liverpool. I mean, gee whiz, you just had a look at, at what he'd done and to have instant uh, uh, respect for the man. And um, that that was the situation. I mean, it was quite amazing that in that situation, as he came to Newcastle, Bobby Robson got the England job. Uh Simultaneously. And Bobby Robson, the first, when Keegan made his debut for Newcastle in the second division, that day Bobby Robson was the new manager of England, came to St James's Park to watch Keegan, walked into the director's box, the whole crowd stood up to applaud the Geordie who had come to watch Newcastle's new saviour, gave Bobby Robson a round of applause, brought the rafters down. Now, nice guys and successful guys like Keegan, like Robson, what have they got? They've got a ruthlessness. 
Bobby Robson come watch Keegan, looked at the situation, said you've dropped down, said to himself, you've dropped down into the second division. That's not good enough for England. First thing he did after Wushu, first thing he did is drop, strip him of the captaincy and drop him from England. Bobby Robson, having come up here and, and the crowd up here were furious. And so was Kevin Keegan. Kev, Kev got the pet lip on, bless him, because he's terrific at that. And, and he got the pet lip on over being with, with Bobby at the time. But two years later, when he left Newcastle, why did he leave Newcastle? Because we played at Liverpool in the FA Cup and he said the ball dropped and he had five yards on Mark Lawrenson to get to the ball. And Lawrenson got past him and took the ball and carried on. And he said, I realised that day that I no longer had the legs to play in the top flight. So when Newcastle got promoted, he retired f from playing. Sense of drama, his birthdays... Uh, February the 14th, St. Valentine's Day, and he announced on St. Valentine's Day, loved by Newcastle United, he was retiring at the end of the season. Uh, and it was because of what had happened at Liverpool that he retired. So let's then jump to Keegan as manager and we'll talk about his captains. And again, did he do a similar thing as Joe did? He, he, Joe wanted a captain... Yeah. Um, which he could see in himself. Is that what Keegan did or was it slightly different? No, it was slightly different because um, Keegan was clever. He knew we were on the verge of going into the old third division when Kevin Keegan took over. I mean, you know, it wasn't pretty and uh, and it wasn't, we weren't, you know, he built the entertainers. The entertainers didn't exist when he took over. There were anything but entertainers. They were sliding rapidly towards the third division and he had to stop that slide. So like Javier did, he built sides. And the first side he built was to keep us in the second division and then get us out the second division. And for example, once we got out of the second division, he jettisoned Kelly, who was his big striker, who had scored a bundle of goals because he wasn't a first division player in his eyes. And, and he jettisoned him and bored better. Uh, and he did all the way through from Andy Cole to Ferdinand to Shearer for, for centre-forwards. But... He always said that the reason the entertainers happened was because, obviously, we, we didn't go down and we built a side quickly to get us up. And his signing, Brian Kilcline, he always says, was the father of the Newcastle United side that become the entertainers because, first and foremost, and he wasn't in Keegan's image. He wasn't a quality man on the ball knocking it about. He was nicknamed Killer, and quite rightly so, because that's exactly what he was. And he was like a Viking Raider, as we know. I mean, he, he, he had born of Irish parents, he had long hair, walrus moustache, ponytail, and he took everybody off at their stocking tops. Um, and he, he was a leader in the role of Harvey and Moncur. Uh, he had skipped Coventry when they dramatically won the FA Cup in 1987 and he'd come to Newcastle and it was short term. He was never going to be the centre-half of the entertainers when they became the entertainers. He was going to be the man that locked the back door and said, no, you're not getting past us. We are going to keep clean sheets. And he organised the kids brilliantly to do that. Um, then... Uh, an emerging Steve Howie uh, was coming through like a rapid rate of knots at Newcastle and within a couple of years, Brian moved on and Steve Howie become, 
unusually so because he was already at the club, become the big Newcastle centre-half and become England centre-half uh, in the entertainers. And um, But if you were loyal to Keegan, he loved you for the rest of time. Uh, and he always says Killer was the man that, that jump-started his Newcastle United side. Um, and of course, really, when Newcastle come into the towards the entertainers, the man he made skipper and was his skipper from 93 to 97, quite a, a long time, was Peter Beardsley, who had played alongside him in the in the um, the side that won promotion. And he knew what Peter's ability was. And despite um, his age, he was in his 30s, early 30s, he signed him from Everton to bring him back home and he was skipper by example rather than skipper by being a forceful leader and a verbal leader and a roll-your-sleeves-up leader. He, I honestly believe when I look back, and it's hard to say, but I honestly believe that he was probably the most talented man that ever wore a black and white shirt uh, at Newcastle, both as a creator and as a finisher. Uh, and... Keegan recognised that, brought him back to Newcastle and made him skipper because he was a local lad that had made good, had done everything in the game and people would just, other players would just look at his ability in training and on match day and say, wow, he is something special. Uh, and it's quite amazing because uh, to think that that's how he ended up at Newcastle and everything he achieved at Liverpool, of course, and with England and Bobby Robson. Uh, and yet, when he was a kid, he was running about, when he was at Walls End Boys Club, in the same car as Steve Bruce, going down to clubs for trials, in clubs of the size of Colchester, Gillingham, who were knocking them back, knocking the pair of them back. And you think what Steve Bruce became at Manchester United as the club captain and centre-half, and what Peter Beardsley come, and neither of them, when they were at Wolves End Boys Club, could get a club. Uh, I mean, how important is it to get that, to get the right captain? I mean, why did he choose someone who, who like you say, was a kind of a captain by example rather than a forceful captain? So, I mean, for instance, if you look at that team, you probably had... Maybe Darren Peacock, David Batty is the kind of the forceful players. Maybe yeah. Philip Alberta stretch, obviously more of a Yeah. You know, not can we call him a defender, but um Yeah. You yeah. know, why why go for someone more yeah. as an, you know, Well as an because for a start he knew them so well. They they'd become so close when they were playing together. And Pedro absolutely adored Kevin Keegan and and when he was playing with Kevin Keegan, bear in mind uh, he was a very young man and he really hedged his wagon to KK and become his boy, if you like. Uh, and that friendship and that closeness remained even when he went off and went to Liverpool and Everton and whatever and KK went into retirement and played golf and more beer. They kept in touch. And he felt that Beardsley would have his back and Beardsley, as a Geordie, was a great example to put before the Geordies, not just the crowd, but with other players. And his sheer ability would overcome the necessity to have a muscle man. You could have a muscle man elsewhere in the team. And 
And and we were short of that, you know. Yes, he got Batty to do that. Lee Clark, to a certain extent, could do. But he, but he just wanted a passing side. He, he he didn't want. I mean, Peacock was about the only defender. We had, we had overlapping centre halves, and Philip Albert spent as much time on the edge of their box as he did on the edge of his own box. I always said that if Keegan could have got an overlapping goalkeeper and set a complete new trend in football, he would have done that. He didn't go for the muscle that 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 was part of what we'd had in the past. He went for an all-consuming ability side, and really Peter epitomised that and he had that and of course when um, Peter disappeared and when um, KK was going to go out Rob Lee became Newcastle United skipper in 97 to uh, 99 um, and Really, he was almost the same type of skipper, leading by example. I mean, it was always said at the time that that if Rob Lee plays well, Newcastle United play well. That's what people said, because he was the heart and made Newcastle tick. And KK always said that he was the best midfield player in the Premier League at that time. And he had converted him into a midfield player from being a winger. He was a winger It it. it Charlton um, played a bit like Steve Stone at Nottingham Forest who played for England who was a Geordie lad um, didn't have the real pace blistering pace to be an effective winger and therefore was moved inside very very strong and good good finisher and um, he led and he gave way Rob gave way to the bloke that become his best best mate and they're still best mate still today, Alan Shearer, who from 1999 to 2006 was one of Newcastle's great skippers and their greatest goal scorer. Before we get on to Alan, just on Rob Lee, yeah, you look at him quite an unassuming character, comes across quite quiet, but I imagine, you know, mm. you misplaced a pass or you got on the wrong side of him, oh, wouldn't half give you... Yes, he had hidden depths, you could say. Uh, yes, he, he, he appears to be very very quiet but he's very resolute he's very determined uh you don't shift him whatsoever in terms of his opinion and his stubbornness and i mean that in a nice way you always wanted 100 percent as oh, well totally and utterly um and always give 100%. I, I, I mean, I think the crowd had have a huge affection from the, to this day. I often think that his standing in the entertainers is often a little underrated because people try to think of Shearer, they try to think of Les Ferdinand because he was a centre-forward score goals, Ginola with the huge French flamboyance, Tina Asprey like a box of monkeys, uh, you know, jumping up and down the whole time, being extrovert, being wonderful character. And they see that, and sometimes some people don't realise how great and how effective and how important Rob Lee was to the Newcastle United side of that era. Finally, just a word on the entertainers and the, the captain that Keegan picked. I mean, how important was it, to, was it to get the right captain, given, like you mentioned, the attacking you know, yes. talent on display, the lack of defensive nature, really? I mean, I know Keegan maybe argues um, 
against Ajax, I think they conceded less goals in that second half of that you know season. They lost a twenty point mm. lead. But I mean, how important was it to get the right captain and make sure that they had a hold on it and and, and that attacking talent didn't overshadow the you know the the end result. Well, I think to a great extent, you know, the, the attacking talent did overshadow the end result because <laughs> if you look at the season, we give 12 points away to Manchester United and lost the title. We got 12 points ahead because we were all-out attacking side. We lost the 12 points because we were an all-out attacking side. Um, it, it, there was that huge... Uh, Achilles, our biggest strength was our weakness as well. When we got 12 points ahead and then we suddenly lost a couple of games, for example, we played up here against Manchester United and we played them off the park. Schmeichel saved everything. He was sensational. They get one chance, ever can't know, scores, we lose 1-0. Now we suddenly get up the next day and think, because they're now coming like an express train. And I think we got nervous and... We didn't know how to shut shop. That's for certain. We didn't know how to shut shop. And Keegan didn't want to shut shop. He didn't mind letting in three goals because he believed we could score four. Uh, but it started to happen the other way around. And so our biggest strength was also our biggest weakness. And I don't think he ever wanted to rein anybody in. Uh, I mean, and we ended up, he was part of uh, the entertainers right at the death and he become captain later on, but we ended up with the greatest man he signed at the end, Alan Shearer, who become a world record uh, fee at 15 million, with a, a centre-forward who was a skipper. And people will always say, yes, skipper's best at the back. In, as a sweeping generalisation because he can see everything that's happening in front of him, he can see mistakes he can see people not holding their position etc etc and he can pull people around on the field if you play up top you're quite often not sure what's happening behind you so they always say that the best idea if a captain is some member of your back four not a centre forward but Shearer was not only one of our great captains but one of England's great captains I mean, as realise I did say twenty point lead there at the top of the tie, uh, top, the top well, of the table. Wishful thinking. I wish, yeah, we might have hung yeah, we on might then. Have, so um, I do apologise for that. Um, on to Shearer, then you know, kind of a mix of both kind of captains we've talked about. Someone who would who would lead by example, but also would not be afraid to to give you a bollocking. Um, Oh, he was very much that sort of, um, very much that sort of skipper. And I mean, I know, that, and it didn't matter how good you were or whatever, he would sort you out. And I know that he did that in the dressing room privately and he'd never come with people like David Ginola more than once, more than twice. We know that famously he smacked Keith Gillespie in Dublin when, he, when uh, Gillespie got a bit lippy. I mean... Not only, uh, I mean, Keith's dined out on that ever since. Uh, that's one of the big things he talks about whenever he does chat shows. He talks about, and holds his hand up and said, I was mouthy and I deserved it. But he was a skipper that ruled in the old Joe Harvey style. Was he a captain in waiting? Sure, yeah. Always, I think. Uh, he, he always had that ability where you knew that he was going to be captain. And as... He developed as a great player. 
then it was very, very easy to make him captain because if you hadn't given him the armband, he just would have been captain without the armband in the dressing room and, and that would have been the end of that because that's the way he operated and he cared about the team uh, as much as he also cared about himself and scoring goals, of course. And just how proud was he to have the armband? Oh, I mean... Well, he gave away a shed full of medals as guaranteed as it was possible to be at Manchester United. Under Ferguson uh, at Manchester United, you knew if you were good enough to sign for Manchester United and for Alex Ferguson, you were going to end up with a bundle of medals. He had his house picked out in Cheshire that he was moving into when he was signing for Newcastle United, when he was signing for Manchester United, when, when Keegan went in and nicked him for us. I mean, he actually had his house picked out in the deal. That's how close he was. He was signing automatic. He turned, and I know that he came for to us because he believed we had, were second top to Manchester United. Um, and he believed that with Keegan and with the players we had, that his hometown club could win the Premier League Championship. And how wonderful would that be for a local guy? And he came home for that reason. But he cared so much about his club that to stay on here to skipper them in the Champions League in a couple of FA Cup finals at Wembley and to end up with the, the record goal scorer of all time beating the legendary uh, Jackie Milburn and his record could stand for the next 30 years because will a player be at Newcastle long enough on these days where they move around so easily to score the number of goals that he scored and he wouldn't give that up for the world and he's so proud to have been a Geordie that I think if he'd fallen short of Milburn's record he, would, oh, he might have felt oh crikey you know, I gave all this time here, we didn't win anything here, and I didn't have anything, but he has got that up there now as the greatest goal scorer in Newcastle United's history, and that to him is an absolute badge of honour, and makes coming here instead of Manchester United more than worthwhile the right thing to do. What was his greatest attribute as a captain? As a captain, one-eyed determination and a belief that if you're going into battle with with him guaranteed he'll be in the front he won't be in the middle or at the back he'll be at the front when you go over the trenches he'll be at the front he will lead for you uh, and he had that huge ability to score goals but also a mental as well as a physical toughness that is not given to everybody. Um, and I think his one-eyed determination and his sheer courage is the biggest assets he had as a skipper. It came in pretty handy as a goal scorer as well, but as a skipper, I think they, they were his assets. Would you say he was the best captain Newcastle ever had? Great question to say uh, when you're thinking they've got... He's the best goal scorer Newcastle United have ever had. He's the best number nine Newcastle United have ever had. Of that, there's no question. And he would be in the top two, the top three. I mean, the only skippers that would give him 
a go would be Munker and Harvey. Um, and it would be a flick of a coin which one you'd won. I think you would probably end up going for him because he, he skipped England a bundle of times as well. Uh, what Monks has gone, got going from is he, he, Monks can say, there's a European medal, show me yours, Alan. And so there, there's that. And of course, I suppose Joe could say, there's two FA Cup medals, show me that, Alan. But it's you're not, in a team game, you're not always... Uh, remembered for your medals because there's another 10 guys you're remembered for your own personal ability and in that he's top of the pile without a, any exception whatsoever so obviously then Shio retired um, we move on to a few names just to kind of finish off yeah we'll start with Mr Michael Owen I'm afraid we have to because <laughs> uh, he was the skipper that came after Alan although um, he played with Alan Uh not my favourite signing for Newcastle United, I'm afraid, although it was Newcastle United record. It's £16 million for for quite a while. Um, I, I think that Freddie Shep signed the name, not the player. He signed the name Michael Owen. Michael Owen <coughs> that I had seen when he was a teenager and he was at Liverpool, and I went out with England to the World Cup in France, and he scored against Argentina when he ran the slalom run, left, right, left, right, and tucked it in the top corner. It was a sensational finisher with blistering pace. He'd lost the yard by the time he came to Newcastle, uh, which is why Liverpool allowed him to leave Liverpool, and which is why Real Madrid most certainly allowed him to leave there. Um and I think we oughtn't to have signed him. And Shepard admitted, bless him, later on that he was that Michael Owen was his worst signing. <clears throat> he was the skipper when we got relegated. He fell out with his big mate Alan Shearer uh, because of the way uh, he reacted to Shearer when he was caretaker uh, manager for that short spell. Uh, in the book that he's just written. He came out and said that he wished he hadn't come to Newcastle, uh, that he hadn't signed for Newcastle. Well, all I can say is, so do we wish he hadn't come, Michael. We, I agree with you there. I wish also that he hadn't come to Newcastle because he was cold. He never bought into what the club meant. He never bought into what the fans meant. And uh, he said, he said, not me, I was only thinking of the money because he was offered 120000 a week. He said that, not me, but I think that tells you everything. Bit of a strange choice, well, because we mentioned leading by example, we mentioned the, um, you know, the forceful kind of character, of which you would argue he was probably neither. Um, and to make him captain just seems a bit of a bizarre, a bizarre decision. Well, I think so. Um, because, yeah, uh, he was... Never going to be ultra-popular in the dressing room or on the terraces because he's a coalfish, for goodness sake, the height of his career. The, the greatest part of Michael Owen was when he was playing for Liverpool. And yet the cop never took to Michael Owen because he wasn't warm, he wasn't uh, passionate about it. He, in the way they took to Robbie Fowler and, and other players at Liverpool, he was never remembered with that sort of affection. And... Um, he was a coalfish up here. The, the reason they made him skipper is because he was 
Newcastle's record buy, and he'd played for Liverpool, England and Real Madrid. So in terms of leading by example, they meant the pedigree on paper. But it wasn't exam. He, he, he'd lost a yard of pace. He wasn't at all effective as, as he had been as a player. And his heart wasn't in Newcastle United. And I tell you what, the Newcastle fans will forgive lots of things, including a certain limited ability, if you will run through a brick wall for the black and white shirt. When you show indifference, they're very unforgiving. And Owen was the poorest example of what we wanted as a captain. On to the final couple of mentions then, just to wrap up. We're going to go with Kevin Nolan, obviously the captain during that championship season. Um, Do you know what? Obviously, the the past few months, his comments have angered a few Newcastle United fans on his views on Mike Ashley and what have you. But, I mean, as a player for Newcastle United, um, a very shrewd signing, you know, that, that, that first season back in the Premier League and that championship season... I got to know Kevin quite well when he was up here um, through mutual friends, apart from my job. And I had a lot of time for him as a bloke. He's a typical Scouser with a Scouser type of humour. And I think Scousers are very much like Geordies in lots of ways. Um, Passionate, funny, witty and one of the boys. Um, He stuck with us when we went down uh, and helped bring us back up. Um, underrated as a player because when he he didn't have a trick, he, he he didn't have a huge personal skill. He was never going to roll the ball up his trouser leg and not make somebody in, etc., etc. He wasn't that sort of player. He was a finisher. He was a ghost. He ghosted into the box, and he finished. And you thought, where where's he come from? Where 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 did that come from? What run was that? Um, and of course, we're always going to be grateful for him because he scored a hat trick against Sunderland at St James's Park, and we adore people that win derbies for Newcastle. And if I'm if I'm right, I think the man standing in the dugout at, uh, in the Sunderland dugout was Steve Bruce that day. And um, even though he did that ridiculous celebration, the quack quack uh, duck celebration, which looked absolutely horrible, would took him to our heart. Um, I found a sadness recently that he's gone the way he has and said some of the things he said and he has tarnished himself with a lot of Newcastle fans and I sometimes wish players wouldn't do that players that have held a good position in the affections of Newcastle United often think you don't have to say anything just don't say anything don't tarnish the image and I don't know if he was touting for a job and there was the, there was the possibility that he would come up here under a coaching staff of certain people got the job after Rafa and if he was looking to keep in with with Ashley for that reason because he you know having done his, his stint at Notts County he was out of management and but if that's the case, I still don't think you've got to sell your soul and I think he did and I'm sad about that but I can't have anything but good recollections of him as a player and as a man when he was up here. He typified the captain that was going to get people around him because he was a leader, because he would be the centre of attention in the dressing room and because he was a fun guy, a funny guy and scored a lot of goals. So he, he did lead and was a natural skipper. 
Um, I and mean, we could name, we could mention a few more. Obviously, Glenn Rhoda, uh, Colacini. Yeah. But we'll finish on today's captain, Jamal Lasalle. Still a very young man. I think people forget that. I think um, they do. I think but a rapid do. rise at Newcastle in that season. They were they were they were relegated. Um, McLaren Benitez. You know, he came out and he was he was passionate. He was he leaded. Yeah. He led the team. Sorry. Um. And then obviously he awarded the, the captaincy in the Benitez and has kept it and continues to lead by example. Yeah, um, it was an interesting appointment initially because he was so very, very young um, and therefore inexperienced. Uh, but he was seen as captain material by Rafa and given the job. And he did a lot of good things, not just on the park, but off the park. Uh, and if you remember uh, rollicking one or two players that were older than him and more experienced than him when things were going wrong early days in Newcastle, which took a lot of courage, uh, he's addressed the fans when he, there's been a need to after games or whatever. He's put himself up for interviews, etc., etc. So he's taken the responsibility of being captain very, very seriously. Whether the burden has put a little bit extra on his shoulders for his actual job in the in the centre of defence, whether he is an automatic choice in the side. I mean, a lot of people would look at the current Newcastle side now and think that perhaps Shaw would make Kipper, skipper material because I think he's probably the best player we've got. Uh, and could easily be a skipper. Um, but you've got to say for Lascelles through a turbulent time, because in the Mike Ashley era, everything is a turbulent time. And while he had a, a, a manager that believed in him, in, in Rafa, and supported him, he was a good skipper for Rafa. And um, I've got... No complaints about him. There, there has there has come times recently when you wonder form wise and could he play in a flat back four? He's looked vulnerable on it at times, but he is skipper material. He's done a job under very trying circumstances. So no, I would not go out and criticise him. I would say, well done, son. Keep going. Keep at it. Keep your feet on the ground. And if you manage to be skipper of Newcastle over a long period, you're guaranteed a special place in Newcastle United's history. And when he looks down this, the captain's board, it's in James's Park, and sees some of the names we've been talking about, he'll say, I'm in good company. That's one of the great things about him. He doesn't shy away from, from his responsibilities. To finish off then, just describe to me your perfect captain. What is What makes a perfect captain for Newcastle United? I, I think to a great extent you can have people uh, leading by example and I think that's uh, good, that's fine, that's fine. But I like the warrior captain. And, and by that I don't mean you've got to be a centre-half that cuts people off at their stocking tops because there was no greater warrior than Alan Shearer who played centre-forward. Um, I like a natural leader who is a warrior and who you would say, if I'm in the trenches, who would I want standing on my right-hand side? I would want Joe Harvey, Bob Munker, Alan Shearer standing there because I would think, aye, I'll be okay standing with them. 
for me, they are the standout mould. If you want to mould a great captain, they're the mould. There you have it. Well, this has been Gibbo's Corner brought to you by the Everything Is Black and White podcast. Thank you very much, John, for joining us. My pleasure. If you head over to chroniclelive.co.uk, keep up to date with all the latest Newcastle United news. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Finn Dwyer from the Irish History Podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. Please, please, please follow the government's advice right now, which is currently to stay at home where possible. While you're staying at home, I would recommend another great show that's worth checking out. It's Unexplained by Richard McLean Smith. It's a beautifully produced and gripping show that looks at unusual and sometimes unnerving occurrences from the past and present. It's perfect escapism. Check out Unexplained on the Acast app or wherever you get podcasts.